Open your Bibles to the 16th chapter of Romans. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings to you. Now drop down verse 21. Timothy. My co-worker sends his greeting to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord, and Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy, sends you greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. General Switzer, would you stand and pray for me, please? Let's bow our heads. Good, thank you, thank you, thank you. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Bill, our brother. We thank you for everybody here. And we ask that you use him, and we ask that you use his words so that we can see you better that we can serve our new vision and our church and the people in this yeah, community, Lord. Yeah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thanks, thank you. Back in the 1970s, Dr. Ralph Lewis was my preaching professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, and I recall his counsel. Ralph warned us, given the attention span of contemporary congregations, you better have a compelling reason for using as a sermon text a scripture passage that is longer than 12 verses. 
Well, I already broke that rule, didn't I? I read 19, and they contain a bunch of hard-to-pronounce names. Now, here's why I did it, and I hope you'll find the reason compelling. And you just might, if you will keep in mind Paul's charge to us in the 16th verse to greet one another with a holy kiss. Doesn't this chapter make it obvious to us that the church is supposed to be a place of open affection? Do you see that? It is biblical for us to express our love and our fondness for one another. Have you ever wondered how often on any given Sunday, how many People come into a local church, they're looking for warmth and acceptance, but they never find it. Has that ever been your experience? I read a short story about a man homeless walking down the street in a low rent district, filling down and out, holes in the soles of his worn out shoes. His clothes were soiled and wrinkled. He felt as if he'd lost his last friend. And then he approached a little used bookstore. And inside the glass window of that store, there was displayed a book among others. And this particular book had the title, How to Hug. And this man, who was a very romantic nature, very lonely as well, thought to himself, I'm going to spend my last dollar on that book. And so he walked through the door, made his way to the front of the window. He picked up the book. He paid with it. Literally, his last buck, he hurried to a park bench where he sat down, hoping that his recent purchase would dispel some of the depression of his current situation. Now, I want you to try to imagine his disappointment when that book turned out to be the 11th volume of an encyclopedia that covered the subjects from H-O-W to H-U-G. You know, I thought as I read that story, is that descriptive of a church? Do people come with deep needs, real needs? They're feeling lowly. They have terrible maladies. And they come to a church and they're expecting to find something different. And then all they hear is some kind of encyclopedic kind of theoretical love that's explained to them to the very last detail in the Greek and Hebrew, but it means absolutely nothing in the lives of people. You know, God has built into us needs. And among those needs is the need to love and to be loved in return. It is the deepest need of our lives, a kind of love that is not conceptional, it's physical from person to person, and we need this love demonstrated. Years ago, there was a research project presented to a group of health educators in New York study, a city rather, and this study revealed that babies need love as much as they need food. 
This research traced the mental and physical wasting of 91 well-fed babies in a South American orphanage. Now, this orphanage provided all the food, clothing, shelter, all the necessary material needs, but the home had only a very few nurses, and they simply did not have the time or the manpower to give to those babies any love or personal attention. Now, here's the result. 27 of those infants died in the first year, seven in the second, while another 34 developed into adults with deep mental problems. Now, around the same time, Dr. J.A. Hadfield at London University published a book asserting that mental and emotional disturbances in later life can stereotypically be traced to a lack of proper love and empathy in childhood. Hadfield acknowledged there are many reasons for our emotional and mental issues, but he insisted that it's a lack of love that is the major cause. Now, people, those findings are decades old, but subsequent research has proven we don't ever get to the place that we don't need a show of affection. It's essential to life. And that's why there are in scripture, or scripture countless exhortations for us to express our love. And Romans 16 certainly serves to convince us that it is essential for us to show honest, proper affection and to demonstrate proper and positive regard for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss is how Paul puts it in verse 16. He's talking about showing it, demonstrating it, honest, appropriate affection, love, care, and concern. Now, do we grasp how essential that is, how crucial? We're not talking about an encyclopedic kind of love. We're talking about something that's displayed. And did you notice this is not a suggestion? This is a command to be carried out. And it's why our pastors and our elder board and our denominational leaders have been working so very intently on our mission, values, and vision. What's the mission? Building authentic community in Christ. What do we value? Broken people restored by Christ. Intentional relationships to serve others. What's the vision? A church where relationships flourish. Marion Jackson wrote in her classic book, Crowded Pews and Lonely People, these insightful words. And she's talking to us. Why does a person go to church? He chooses one church among many, makes his way there. He sits down in a pew. But why has he come? Why? There are many reasons. It might make him feel good, nicely religious and respectable. Or he may be trying to fill up an emptiness he feels. Or he might be longing to find some meaning in life. Or maybe he has a personal problem. He hopes he will get some help. He'll find some solution for his situation. 
Or he may just be looking for profitable business or professional contacts. If he's a genuine, authentic Christian, he's probably looking for Bible teaching and preaching. He wants to worship God. But it is safe to say that regardless of what other motives brought him to church, consciously or unconsciously, he came to be with people, to be with part of a group, to find fellowship with other human beings, to make friends. Seated in his pew, which may be full, he is surrounded by people. But as he leaves the church, no matter how the sermon or music impressed him, he leaves with definite feelings, either of having been made feel warm with his fellow worshipers or else having been among many, but yet somehow all alone. Research has shown that a person's first 10 minutes in a church determines whether he will or will not come back. Now, 10 minutes is not a long time. Do you see the mandate before us? Do you see why we are to greet one another with a holy kiss? It makes no difference whether your pew neighbor here is a lifer or a visitor. Now, You had the chance to engage him. Don't look. You know who's sitting behind you? (laughs) Now, you had a chance to engage him. Did you? How'd you do? You all familiar with the secular writer T.S. Eliot? He wrote a book entitled The Cocktail Party. And in that particular work, he makes an interesting comment. He says, why the cocktail glass has become the thing of affection in our day and age. Now, here's what T.S. says. The reason the cocktail glass has become so important is because the communion cup has lost its meaning. Now, the communion cup, he explains this. He says, the communion cup represents that special relationship in which persons become close in fellowship and yet are most fully themselves. But this, says Eliot, has been lost. Well, let's take a glance back in church history and let's see how the loss happened. Now, as we do this, I want you to keep in mind Paul's words to us here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The Christians in Rome, they were purified by the fires of persecution because of Emperor Nero's insane reign of terror. First century Christians at Rome couldn't meet and worship as we do. Why, we would have been invaded and killed on the spot if we lived in ancient Rome when Paul wrote this letter and we had the audacity to meet like this. They had to meet underground in the catacombs right alongside the fresh tombs of their loved ones. And the group that meets tonight is going to be smaller than the one that meets tomorrow night. And some will be widows tomorrow who had husbands today. And in many instances, entire households that came to worship the night before came in only ones or twos today because the rest have been slaughtered. 
And they gathered for meals around the table, and they had what they called the agape feast, the love feast. And it was a simple meal that was provided. And then at the close of the meal, they had what came to be called the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. And they preserved a part of a loaf and a common cup of wine. And then in reference and respect to the Lord Jesus' death, they passed that bread around, eating a piece of it in remembrance of his body that was given for them just a few years earlier. And then they would sip from the cup in remembrance of his blood. And then afterwards, they would pause before leaving to kiss one another. And on the case of intimate relationships, that kiss came on the mouth because that very moment may be the very last time that some of them were going to see one another alive. Now, time passed. Persecutions waned and prosperity came. And then in the love feast, the kiss came on the hand. And then on the fingertips. And then they began to kiss the common cup. Do you see what's happening? Instead of kissing one another, they now kiss only a common thing. And then they began to kiss the leather sheath, which was placed on the scrolls of Scripture. And then they kissed the wooden stand on which the scrolls were placed until it finally eroded into what we have today, no kiss at all. People who are coming and going and meeting in what became a rather cruel kind of formality. And by the third and fourth century, when so much of this formalism was built in, that people no longer cared for or cared about each other the way they did during the persecution. Their focus was now on the front, and they even built iron rails to separate the people from the priests. And this is a great gap that lasted throughout the Middle Ages. We call them the Dark Ages. And the Bible was even chained to the pulpit in the dead language of the clergy. The furthest thing from the minds of the people was affection. You just come in and you watch the show up front. You come in, you watch the show up front. Now I wonder, does that still infect and affect us today? Now, even if you are friendly to other people and other people are friendly to you as you come in and come out of worship, is that enough? Is that the holy kiss that Paul's talking about or is that just a peck? Let me personalize this. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, here's what that means to me. I need some men in my life who will sharpen me when I get dull. Men who will take me way beyond just casual relationships and certainly away from counterproductive ones that are incapable of making any real or lasting difference in anybody's life, including my own. I need some men who will say to me, young, your testimony stinks right now. And I need to hear that from somebody besides my wife. 
I need some men who are going to tell me. We know what authentic manhood looks like, and it looks like Jesus. He's God in the flesh, and as we follow him, we will be more and more conformed into his image, and we will personify God's ideal, what it means to be a husband, a father, a faithful friend, a trusted worker, and above all else, a consecrated disciple of the master. I need men I can play with as well as pray with. I need men who are committed to being there for each other, whether it's a broken arm or a broken marriage that you're going through. I need men who are going to share life with you. It doesn't matter if it's a victory you're celebrating or a loss you're suffering. I need men who are involved in mission and ministry with me because like me, they want God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We need men who will bleed with you when they're cut. Men who are living for somebody and for something else other than just themselves. You know what we need? We need men who are going to be closer to you than your kinfolk. Fellas, you got anybody like that in your life? You know, if you take a look at this 16th chapter, you will discover 27 names that Paul mentions. And he says, greet these people, love on them, care for them. I can't be there right now, do it myself, so you do it for me. Now, I don't have time to tell you about all these people, but church history has some incredible and inspirational things concerning some of them. Others, we don't know much or even anything about them. But Paul does tell us here in the letter something about some of them. Some of these are co-laborers in Christ. Wonderful women. People like Trephina and Trephosa and Phoebe and Persis. And by the way, guys, I want you to hear this. That Greek word Paul uses there for these ladies, working or laboring, depending on your translation, it means they worked for the Lord to the point of exhaustion. Hey, guys, you ever done that? There's a husband-wife team here, Priscilla and Aquila. We read about them in the book of Acts. They helped Paul start a church. They helped him when he was in need. Paul says here, they risked their lives for me. And the list goes on and on. We've got early converts and leaders of the church and people who were in prison with Paul. Some of them are his relatives. Others are his friends. They are saints. Some of them are going to be martyrs. And they are all people who love Paul and people Paul loved. They prayed for him. They risked their lives for him and for the cause of Jesus Christ. Do you see? We've got a supernatural kind of love here. we got a kind of fellowship between people. It's a connection. It's a sharing of all that life brings, good or bad. And it's between these people. And that's why Paul says, commend them, greet them, kiss on them, love them, show them genuine affection. You know, the Spirit of God wants to move among us exactly the same way. Where else will you ever have this kind of freedom? Where else will you ever have this intense and this intimate kind of a connection? 
The great preacher Joseph Parker said, in every pew, there is a broken heart. Now this morning, is that broken heart yours? If it's not yours, maybe it belongs to the person sitting next to you. Certainly what it means is that up and down the pews in this church, every Sunday, from this pulpit all the way to the front door, from the narthex all the way to the nursery, there are broken hearts and troubled spirits and people with real needs who have lives that are shattered by failure and frustration and pain and loneliness and disappointment. We got people in here, a bunch of them that are hurting right now. And they should be met by a loving ministry of prayer and an overwhelming demonstration of concern and affection. And folks, that is what's going to keep them going just as it kept Paul going through all of his trials, troubles, and his tribulations. With a God-given spirit of love that we are to demonstrate, we have a ministry of prayer. And we also should Put on that ministry of prayer some hands and feet. And folks, when it's appropriate, put some lips on them. Express your love and concern. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Not just a peck on the cheek. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Charles Swindoll, one of America's favorite pulpit commentators. Chuck is a fabulous preacher, a prolific author, a Bible teacher, and a scholar, and a former seminary president. Much earlier in his life and ministry, Chuck told about this painful personal experience. It involved his father-in-law, who lived in Tyler, Texas at the time. Now, this man buried Chuck's wife's mother after a terrible brain cancer. And then he married again, as it turned out, much too quickly. He had high hopes it was right, but it was all wrong, and it didn't work out, and it blew up in his face. And through the disaster, he lost everything. The man was at the end of his rope. Now, he'd been a church attender all his life. His son-in-law was one of America's best-known pastors. But people both in and outside the church began to pour it on and pile on. They criticized him. They condemned him. And finally, things got desperate for him. And so he wrote to Chuck. I just wanted to tell you that I'm going to AA. Chuck was shocked. It only made him love his father-in-law all the more, but he had no idea his father-in-law had a drinking problem. He thought his father-in-law was a teetotaler. So Swindle called him on the phone. He just wanted to tell him, Dad, I love you. I'm praying for you. 
Dad, I want you to know I fully support you. Chuck urged him to stay with AA, assuring him AA is a wonderful program. It does a tremendous job with alcoholics in recovery. And as Chuck was going through this, he was interrupted by his father's raucous laughter. And then he said, no, 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 Chuck, you don't get it. I don't have a drinking problem. I, you know, I don't touch the stuff. I go to AA because it's the only place I can find any real love and fellowship. God help us. AA does a great job. Here's what's better. A church where relationships flourish. In the language of the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. It's okay. You may kiss the bride. Pray with me.